episode of the podcast, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Britta from Happy Tales Rescue. So first of all, welcome, Britta. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, before we talk about Happy Tales Rescue, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, Britta, who you are and where it is that you come from? Well, I am from up north in the U.S. Um, I grew up in a really small town in Virginia. Um, worked a lot as a kid. You know, uh, parents were not really around, so worked a lot as a as a kid. Um, a few different jobs, went to school, graduated college, you know, all that good stuff. And I started working for a company Um around 19 years old and I worked for them for about seven years where I transferred here to Florida. Um, since I moved down here, got my own place, you know, uh, that's when I really got started with the kitties uh, when I moved to Florida. And so what was it in your life that made you get involved with cats? Well, both sets of my parents, they, one family really liked dogs, one really liked cats. And I have always, <laughs> I, I've always been partial to cats. I've always been a cat person. Um, I guess it really started when I found my first cat, which was when I was working under the table at a restaurant um, mm -hmm. when I was 13 years old. And I went out to throw the trash in the dumpster. And, you know, it was, it was daylight. It was still in the morning, just threw the trash out from the previous day. And I threw it up there and a box fell down from the top of the dumpster. And out came this kitten, this gray little kitten, a uh, tiny little thing. And thankfully, the dumpster was enclosed with a fence. So it took me about 15 minutes to find the kitten because he was cowering somewhere. And I eventually found him. Uh, at the time, obviously, I was not in a position to care for a cat myself. I was 13. So um, I ended up calling my stepmother. And she actually came and got the kitten. It needed to be bottle fed. It was really small and pretty skinny. Um, so she ended up coming and get the to get the kitty. But ever since then, I've just you know been. I've just wanted to help cats because who throws away a cat in a dumpster? Yeah. You know. And were you involved with the bottle feeding at that young age yourself? No, I wasn't. I wasn't living with my stepmother. Um, I was actually just living in an apartment at the time and uh, I wasn't living with my stepmother. So um, I was not um, because my mother and stepfather, they lived close by, but not in the apartment that I lived in. And they were dog people. They were the dog people. So there is no way that a cat could be in, you know, life. And of course, me uh, living in that apartment really by myself, it wasn't something that I could do because I had to work and I had to go to school and to bottle feed a kitten without an adult you know uh was not something that could be done because you can't take it to school and I couldn't yeah. take it to work so uh my stepmother did that part of it and he's actually as far as I know still living today so oh, you know wow that's incredible yeah <laughs> now, it le obviously led you on to other things and Happy Tales was born. So can you tell me about the start of the early days for Happy Tales and, and why it was set up and how long ago that was? Yeah, so when I first came to Florida, um, when I finally did get my own place, I started fostering for another rescue organization and they were great. It's just... Um, you know, we have differing of opinions on certain things. So um, eventually, you know, I fostered for them. And then eventually, you know, once I figured out how to start a rescue, the process to doing so and did start my own rescue, um, we kind of parted ways with fostering for them. But it was a about four years ago now that I started Happy Tales. And, you know, originally we started probably like everybody else with just, you know, little kittens. And we had um, a friend who had some. So we started out with a mom who had an obnoxiously large amount of kittens as our first, uh, our first intake. But it was about four years ago, actually next month that we started Happy Tales. Oh, so it'll be a special anniversary for you then. Yeah. 
<laughs> now it's it's such a, an amazing thing that you do because you you help sick, injured, and special needs cats around the Tampa Bay area. Why was it so important for you to do this? Because sometimes people set up a nonprofit and they sort of focus only on kittens, but you do so much more than that. So. We started with like normal kitties, um, probably like everybody else, but it just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, we started seeing a lot more upper respiratory infections, injured cats, things like that. And, you know, doing things like that, upper respiratories are just easy, but, you know, starting out like that, it was... Um, I found that that is something that I really wanted to do, that those are the ones who really needed help, you know, not necessarily the the healthy ones that would do well in a shelter situation, like eight weeks old, healthy, they can easily be adopted out of your county shelters, right? Yeah. But, you know, the, the ones that are sick or injured, you know, that need that extra care and that extra time, I felt that really running a rescue that's what rescue is always meant to me um not the healthy ones that could be adopted by anyone at any shelter that don't need any additional care right but the ones who really need help um the ones that need you to rescue them basically and how big is the need for this because obviously from what i've seen there are so many uh, how would you say not advertisements, but people do uh, sort of publish posts for cats who do need special help, and they are they're also on euthanasia lists as well. Yeah, so around here, I don't know what it is like elsewhere, but I know that around here, which is like the Tampa Bay area of Florida, um, Texas is really bad as well. But just around this area, I know it seems like there's a great need for uh, more people to help the sick and injured cats out there because there just seem to be so many out there. We typically pull from euthanasia lists um, at like Hillsborough County Pet Resources center or Pasco County Animal Services, you know, any of the shelters like that. So well, that's where we do get the majority of our cats. The ones that are up for euthanasia do come from there. Um, we do get owner, not really owner surrenders, but it could be stray cats. It could be owner surrenders as well, but typically stray cats that are, you know, friendly and need additional medical care as well. So, but the majority do come from those euthanasia lists because it is a um, the Hillsborough County Pet Resource Center is probably the biggest one around here. And you see a lot of sick and injured cats pass through there. And do, do people bring them into them or are they actively going out and searching and finding them? So they, um, from what I understand, animal control would be called um, on a cat outside, whether it's sick or injured, or they could even be owner surrenders. We don't get all of that information typically. Um, we usually see like the location address of like where the cat was picked up if we request it. But it can be owner surrenders. A lot of the times there are surrenders um, from actual owners. They can do that because it is an open access shelter um, or they do get these cats from outside um, quite a few cats they find because as someone will call animal control because they've seen uh, a very sick cat or a, a cat that's limping you know or a cat that's eyes are really bad so they'll call animal control animal control will go out and get the cats and then bring them back to the shelter it's a, it's a lot of work for them, I guess, to do all of this, but at the same time, do all of the advertising online because they're having to constantly update and keep sharing everything. Can you just explain a little bit of how it works when people pledge and you are able to pull one of these cats out of the euthanasia list just in time? So the shelter aspect of it is um, you apply to be a rescue partner with Hillsborough County Pet Resource Center or another county shelter, right? So you have to be a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit established um, rescue with a good vet recommendation. They do require those things. Once you're an approved shelter partner, 
then they have an email list that the shelter sends out. So they just select rescue partners and then they will type up updates about the cats that need, you know, rescue commitment or they would like to see have rescue commitment. Now, some of those have firm deadlines, meaning they will be euthanized if not pulled by that date and time. Typically, young kittens are same day. Um, Very, very sick adults uh, will be same day as well. Wow. But that's the shelter aspect. And then you have urgent cats of Tampa Bay. That has nothing to do with the shelter whatsoever. This is an independently run page by volunteers around the area who just love cats. Um, so they are um, have access to that email list. Um, they may be part of uh, rescue groups or they may just have access so that they can post online. So Urgent Cats of Tampa Bay is the main page that we see or Rescue Me Tampa. Um, but the one that we usually see most of the posts on are Urgent Cats of Tampa Bay. And they'll go and they'll make a collage out of the photos and then share that to Facebook. But that is independent of the shelter. It doesn't actually have anything to do with the shelter staff. And then when people do pledge on there um, in terms of donating, once a rescue, a licensed rescue pulls the cat, those people will go and donate towards the care, whatever amount that they pledged. And that's all done by those uh, volunteers on urgent cats. And you have to trust that people follow up the pledges, I guess, because you know you've taken on this commitment to help this cat. Yeah, you do to a certain extent. Now they're a little bit more strict and they followed up more with those who pledge. Mm-hmm. So they, the actual page managers will go and follow up with those who pledge on the posts. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, it wasn't like that. They would just post on there and then maybe 50% of the pledges would come in. And now it might be a little bit more, but... You know, when I'm pulling a cat, I can't, I don't necessarily just from my aspect of seeing things, I don't count on those pledges. That would be great if they all came in, but it would be irresponsible of me running a rescue, taking this cat to just assume that all of those pledges are going to come in because some people aren't on Facebook often. So they might not see that. I've gotten pledges for cats three months after we've taken them in and they've already been adopted. So um, you just can't guarantee that that's going to come in. So for me, I never look at that and say, that's my deciding factor to take a cat. You know, I have to make sure that we can care for this cat um, without those donations. Now, it's such a big commitment because at the time, you don't always know the full medical background of what you're taking on. How do you choose which ones you know you can or you can't help? So sometimes it can create a little bit of a pickle. Um, What we like to do is kind of have this um, cushion per se of funds that because we do take in cats that are very expensive. We don't really, we don't really have cats that are, you know, just your typical spay neuter. We don't really see those very often. The majority of the cats that we take in are cats that require extensive medical care. So they are expensive. So, um, we, usually have a little bit of money put aside so that if that does happen, um, we can still care for them. Um, The issue is making sure we can build that back up so that if an emergency does happen, because what if you take a cat in and you already know this cat is very sick, but you can care for it and foster, right? Because we can do things like give cats IV fluids. We can do all of that from some of our foster homes. So what if it gets to a point where you can't manage it at a foster home and you have to bring the cat to a 24-hour care facility? That's extremely expensive. That's Mm -hmm. not cheap. So if you don't have that money already set aside for an emergency, then that cat is the one that's going to suffer. So typically we'll have a little bit put aside that we can use for emergencies. That way we know, hey, this cat can, any cat that has an emergency will be able to be taken care of responsibly. And I think that everyone should really have that. Now, after Sky um, and a few of the other cats that are were quite a bit more expensive than what we initially thought they were going to be, we don't really have that cushion now, but you know, we will rebuild it. 
but it is something good to have because of the cats we take in. We can't guarantee that we can always care for them and foster. And we don't want to put the cat at risk by taking that cat in and not being able to provide an emergency vet care if needed. Now, you met, you mentioned Sky, and her story was particularly painful. And from what I've seen, you've tried so hard to do everything that you possibly could. Could you tell everybody a little bit about her story and her journey with you? Yeah, so Sky was... Uh... She was a very special kitten. I think she was a very special kitten for a lot of people, especially those that do, you know, follow us on Facebook. She was found outside by a good Samaritan and they had contacted us because the kitten was basically prone. She wasn't able to move. She couldn't really lift her head on her own. She could just lay flat on her side and that was all that she could do. But the moment you touch her and pay attention to her, she would purr. And she ravenously would eat. So we said we would take her and then, you know, feeding her, just hand feeding her. This kitten loved to eat. She was just the happiest little thing. Even though she couldn't move, she was extremely happy. So we took her to the vet and we did all the basic things, um, x-rays, blood work, urinalysis, um, started her on steroids and an antibiotic, a broad spectrum to cover for anything because her white blood cell count was really high. When that really didn't prove to change much for her, she could, she started being able to lift her head a little bit, but not much. We took her to a neurologist. She uh, had an MRI and was diagnosed with panventriculomegaly, which is a form of hydrocephalus. Basically, it's the back portions of the um, ventricles are enlarged with fluid, which is causing pressure. In her case, this pressure had built up so much, this fluid had expanded so much that it had caused her cerebellum, which as some people know, controls your movement, mm -hmm. your, your um, ability to coordinate movement, that type of thing. It had caused that to herniate down into her spinal cord partially, um, and her brainstem was being compressed as well, and that controls all of your autonomic functions, like your typical breathing, swallowing, things that you don't think. Typically, panventriculomegaly differs from hydrocephalus, especially congenital hydrocephalus, because it's usually caused by infection. Nine and a half times out of 10, 95% of the time, it's caused by infection. In Skye's case, there was no uptake on contrast on the MRI, meaning it was unlikely an infection. The fluid was sent out three days later, came back as not being infection. So she ended up having a shunt placed in her brain, which is just this tube that's placed inside of the enlarged ventricles connected to a valve that's tunneled under the skin and the tubing continues into the peritoneal space of the abdomen in order to drain properly. Mm -hmm. And she had that place and did amazingly for the first two weeks post-op. She was sitting up even, she could control her limbs, she could hold her head up, she did amazing. But the problem with shunts in people and in cats is 50% of them cause complications and hers clogged. So about three weeks post-op, went back in, had another MRI and her shunt was repaired, the portion of it that needed to be. And because there was additional enlargement in her fourth ventricle above her brainstem, um, also causing, you know, uh, brainstem compression, which is why her symptoms returned so quickly. Um, Another shunt was placed in her fourth ventricle, connected to the valve, and was draining great. She did amazing for two months. Um, back to her normal self, starting to sit up and eating and happy and purring and always asking for attention. But she started to decline about two months after that again, um, and her symptoms had returned. She could still hold her head up. She still was leaps and bounds above the cat that we had taken in originally. So her abilities were still well above what we had originally seen with her, but she already had a checkup scheduled. So she had another MRI at that checkup and her shunts were working perfect. So I thought that was great until he told me what actually was going on was they're not really cysts because they're not infection. It didn't uptake contrast 
but she had these three, for lack of a better word, cysts surrounding her brainstem. And they weren't really small. Uh, they were probably the size of a large grape. Uh, and these are in a kitten's brain, in a six and a half month old kitten's brain surrounding her brainstem. So it took him a minute to kind of put a plan together. We both were of the assumption she's still eating. She's still drinking. She's still a happy kitten. Let's move forward and do what we can to help her because she was doing her best to still be herself. So we, he had sent uh, messages to a group that he's with. It's a group of neurologists. There's 16 other, uh, 17 other of them, actually. So there's 18 total, including him. And he also talked to a human neurologist. And none of them had any other better idea than what his idea was, which was to actually remove a portion of her skull, go in, drain those cysts, and keep them open to drain. So hopefully they don't come back. Um, but it took a few days to get that together. So her MRI was too. Tuesday. It was Friday before he officially had a plan, which really is not that long, right? Mm -hmm. And so we set surgery Friday for the following Tuesday because um, he just had to order something. So we set it for Tuesday. And Saturday, unfortunately, that next day, um, when we went to feed her, she started, she went right for the food as per usual, and then started choking on it. And she did this repeatedly. Um, she had a couple times where she would sit up and have trouble breathing. Um, and then her gums would turn blue when that happened. And typically, I already knew what was going on. Her brain stem compression was just getting worse. And it does control all of your autonomic functions, including your swallowing and your ability to control your breathing. Knowing that, there wasn't a way we could get her to Monday, let alone Tuesday. And veterinary neurology is advanced, but with that damage being done to her brain stem and with everything going on, at that point in time, we wouldn't be able to get that function back. So we made the decision to take her to our primary vet who saw her multiple times. And, uh, and unfortunately, we decided that it was best for her to cross the Rainbow Bridge peacefully yeah. rather than wait and allow that decline to let her go because she wouldn't have lasted to surgery and we wouldn't have gotten that function back no matter what we did. It was a six and a half month old kitten. Um, and those cysts were growing at an, a very fast rate. If between Tuesday and Saturday, we saw the decline that we saw. Gosh, it's, it was just so terribly sad because I think everyone was just willing her to live and as you said you know she had her ups and downs but she just seemed to fight so hard that she just wanted to live yeah she really didn't she even when she would decline what one post the with the shunt clog and then post the second surgery when those cysts started to appear in her brain she never lost the spirit that made her sky yeah. she was always just this happy a uh, kitten who would throw her little head into your hand the second that you would reach out to her. So even when she started to lose her function, even that last day that she had, even when I would put my hand right in front of her head, she would throw her head into my hand and ask for attention. And that's who she always was. Um, she was just a very sweet, loving cat who I think I've never seen a cat that had a will to live like she did. How does it affect you emotionally when you have to go through this? Oh, well, in that instance, I cried like a baby, yeah. but you know, um, it was, we had taken her to, to our primary vet and it's one of those things where some vets don't mind you seeing them cry in this instance. Of course, I was trying to be quiet about it. <laughs> um, but he was in and out as quick as he could be poor guy. He, uh, he, <sighs> You know, they were awesome to her and they cared about her too. The whole staff at that event office did. So did, uh, you know, Levine's office. They were all very attached to her because we all saw what kind of cat she was. But it can be hard, especially when you, which is me, has to make those decisions yeah. because I am the only person that will make that decision. I'm the only person in the rescue that will ever have to make that decision for a cat. And I, I do it that way because it's not 
my foster's um, decision to make. It doesn't have to be on them. And Sky was my foster, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, it was hard to make that decision. I knew I had made the decision before I called the vet because they weren't open yet. But, you know, I was already, uh, you know, crying, upset at the time because it's just hard. You put so much effort and time and you see the miraculous things that cats and kittens can do. They're miraculous healers. And then you just know that at that point in time, there's no hope and there's nothing that you can do. So the only gift you can give, whether it's hard on yourself or not, is to give them a peaceful passing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's not about money anymore because you know that you would do whatever you could if there was a chance, but there's no chance when it gets so far. Right. It's never for us about money, I don't think. You know, whether we have it or not, we will somehow find a way to raise the money. We Mm -hmm. always will, because whatever happens, we're going to make sure that the cat gets the best care that they can. Um, And sky surgery was scheduled. We had no idea what the cost was. The neurologist had no idea. He had never done an open brain surgery on a six and a half month old kitten. I mean, honestly, what, what, veterinary neurologist has um but he knew what he was doing and he's done the same thing on dogs before the only difference is this is a tiny kitten head but we had no estimate um the good thing is he you know he knew that we would find the way to pay it so um it wasn't about money at all but if we know anything about brain stems especially in small animals um they're not as once a brain stem is injured (laughs) People can have brainstem strokes. Think of it like that, right? That brainstem doesn't recover. Mm -hmm. So what function they lose when that happens is lost. And with that compression that we were seeing with her, relieving the pressure would not have erased that damage. Uh, Maybe would it have helped a little bit? Possibly. But relieving all of that pressure and whatever damage had already been done to that brainstem, it's irreversible. So you don't really know what kind of life she could have lived then, I guess. No. And then it would, it also came down to, you know, she's a six and a half month old kitten, tiny brain. Would she survive the operation? We didn't know when we scheduled it, if she would, but we knew that she was still fighting. And even on her last day, she was still fighting. She still wanted to eat. She just couldn't, you know, and with her breathing patterns going downhill like that, it was even if she survived the surgery would it be a life worth living due to the damage that has already been done you know brain stems aren't like your brain where you can get these new electrical pathways to form over time right brain stems once they're damaged that's that's it there's no coming back now you did officially yesterday launch sky's fund And your motto is that no cat is left behind. Can you tell me about this special Sky Fund? Yeah, so we've been thinking of a way to honor her because she had such this bigger than life spirit in her, right? She was always happy. Her her spirit was just so much bigger than she was, um, than that tiny little body. So we were trying to find a way to honor her. And we thought of and created the Skies Fund to do that. Um, A lot of rescues will say no cat left behind, but it's not really no cat left behind, right? Um, it's, It's not always the ones who have the most medical need. Cats in the end do get left behind. And that's usually the cats that we do take in. But Sky's Fun is there for those cats like her, who her bills over a three and a half month period totaled over $23,000. And for a rescue, a little rescue who already does um, 
pretty expensive medical conditions in cats, we don't have the ability to continue helping cats like that yeah. a lot. So Sky's Fund is there to allow us to raise money to help cats with more complex needs like she had, the ones that need CTs and MRIs and more complex care than can be provided by just like a primary veterinarian or your simple blood work and x-rays. It's there for the cats that are basically mysteries. Um, there's quite a few of those out there. We've had quite a few in our rescue, not just Sky. We had one before her named Zelda. We have one right now uh, named Poncho that we've, uh, we still don't know exactly what's causing his insulin resistant diabetes. So it's not as uncommon as people think. So Sky's Fund is there to allow us to help those cats without concern over money. Will we draw a line in their care if these cats are suffering? 100% we will. But if the cat is fighting, they deserve the best chance that they can have, like any pet, like any owned pet would have to get the best medical care that they can have. And where do the majority of your funds come from? Donations typically is where we see most of our funding come in. Um, we try to share a lot of our more medically needy kitties on Facebook, or we just really started using Instagram more. It's, it's just not, it's a different type of platform. Um, and a lot of our cats are pretty complicated. They're not really straightforward. So there's also a limit on what you can write on Instagram, but most of our donations will come um, from social media and people sharing things and telling their employers about it. Um, employees telling their employers is a huge part of where we get the most funds from because a lot of employers have matching programs. So if an employee donates money, the employer matches that. Or they even, uh, we've had one person share with their employer who donated $5,000 um, because they, um, she shared with him enough that he felt the need to help a specific cat. So most donations come through social media, uh, which is the... I mean, honestly, I think that's how a lot of most rescues get their funding now is through uh, social media donations. And I guess it's a good way of sort of free advertising of what you need at any one time, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is because you can share what you need because needs are ever changing in a rescue, whether it's monetary donations, supplies, both. Um, it changes for everybody at any given moment. So it's definitely a good way to let people know what you need um, or what's most needed if they would like to donate. Yeah. Now, you have had two very special cats who have come into your care recently, and I wanted to talk about them in particular. Now, uh, they are obviously Poseidon and Leonidas. Now, both of their stories captured my heart. Would you like to tell us a little bit about Leonidas first? Yeah, so um, earlier on, we were talking about uh, Hillsborough County Pet Resource Center. That's where both of the cats came from. Um, Leonidas was on the euthanasia list because he had been shot in the spine with a BB, and that BB had lodged in his spine. He was paralyzed, not able to urinate on his own initially, and he had a severe urinary tract infection. He was just peeing blood. And obviously this isn't something that a shelter can handle because to express a bladder and then make sure this cat is doing well and getting better um, isn't something that could be done at a, at a shelter. So he had a pretty strict deadline. So we ended up taking him in and we already knew that he would need to see a neurologist because um, neurologists are the only ones that will operate on a spinal cord. So if your pet has spinal issues, you have to see a neurologist, right? So we had texted um, a technician who works at our uh, Levine Veterinary Neurology, who's our neurologist office. We had texted them on a Saturday when they're closed. And of course she answered, which was awesome and set him up an appointment for Tuesday. So that was Saturday um, to be seen. Now at the time, Dr. Levine was traveling. So it was just gonna be a drop off. Um, and we he would look at him and we would go from there. Um, 
But on that Monday, we ended up taking him to our primary vet because he was still urinating an excessive amount of blood. Um, and we wanted to make sure that he was covered with a better antibiotic than what we had for him, uh, what the, the shelter had given for him. So we had taken him to our primary vet Monday. And then Tuesday, we took him down to... Uh, Levine Veterinary Neurology, where uh, Dr. Levine took a look at him. And because an MRI is basically a big magnet, you have to remove the metal first. So he went in and he uh, removed the BB from his spine and performed a hemilaminectomy. So he just took out the damaged portion um, and then closed him up and did the MRI. The Everything looked great. He the only issue really that Leonidas had that Dr. Levine was concerned about after removal of the BB was we don't know if he's going to get the function back because the right side where the the BB entered, the nerves were unsalvageable. He can't fix them. They had no, um, they didn't conduct anything when he tested them. So they weren't going to be able to be salvaged. So as time went on after surgery, he did really great. Everything cleared up amazing. He had his sutures removed and we've been doing some, you know, a little PT physical therapy for him, like planting exercises to get his feet under him because he was able to move his legs a little bit on his own. He just didn't know he was doing it initially. He couldn't consciously move them. He couldn't say, I want to walk or I want to sit or I want to stand and let his legs do it. Right. So we started trying to get him to a point where he could do that. And as his spine started healing, he was on a steroid for, I think, about three weeks post-surgery to hopefully reduce some of that inflammation and hope that he would start getting use of his legs consciously. And he slowly did. Um, he actually stood up a few days ago and ate food on his own while standing. So that was great. And he even can take a few steps. It's very wobbly granted, but mm -hmm. he was still able to take a few steps on his own. So uh, just a couple days ago, we had him go and uh, see an acupuncture vet who also does like veterinary rehabilitation and he got some laser therapy for his back. Um, they're very hopeful that he will be able to fully regain function. With what they're seeing now, they think that he will be able to walk again, which is just amazing because it's better news than any of us thought. We thought if he could walk, it would be, you know, a little bit here and there, but they are pretty confident that with time and some, uh, it's electro acupuncture, which stimulates the nerve. So it's acupuncture and they attach wires to it and send currents through the wires to stimulate the nerves. So, they think that with time and effort and continuing what we're doing with like planting and helping him walk that, you know, he will be able to regain full function and walk again. And do they have any idea of what time scale his recovery will take? They don't know. For now, we're on a week schedule, you know, a week, mm -hmm. once a week schedule. So we'll take him there once a week, um, do the laser therapy for his back, and then do the electroacupuncture weekly. He gets about two sessions of that. We have about 10 minutes each session. Um, and hopefully we'll see some improvements within the next couple weeks. But we don't really have a time frame for how long it could take. Right now, we're just going week by week and see how he responds. And then if he's responding favorably, we can change some things up in the future. Um, but probably I would assume with any spinal cord injury, you're looking at a three to six month process for a cat um, after starting that kind of therapy. It could even be longer. A lot of people with spinal cord injuries, they take almost 12 months to recover fully, if not a little bit longer. And that's with even more aggressive physical therapy, not not just what we can do with the cat. Obviously, we can't do what people can do, you know, because we can't tell him to do those exercises. But with what we can do for him, we're hoping within the next three to six months, possibly, we'll be seeing um, him walking around better. And what kind of home do you think you would be looking for? Because obviously you'll be so attached to him by the time he's ready to go on into his next adventures. 
So he'll, he would do great in pretty much any home. Obviously we would, um, try for a home with no large dogs, no Mm -hmm. rambunctious animals, because the last thing we really want to do is re-injure everything. So he would be looking, I would ideally like him to find a foster to adopt home eventually within the next few months, as he gets further into this, um, the veterinary rehabilitation, uh, hopefully we can find a foster to adopt home where he would go to his prospective adoption home. Uh, They would take him to these rehab appointments and all that while we continue to pay the bills. But this is going to be when he's a little bit better. But a quiet home would be best for him. Like an older cat would be good. Uh, Nothing with a lot of rambunctious animals. We would prefer a home with no children just because of the fact that, again, we don't really want to re-injure a healing spinal cord. So it could be a little bit more difficult to find him a home mm-hmm. because of that but ideally a home with a quiet home with no young children uh, no large playful dogs that type of thing and then we also have poseidon who is another one that you recently rescued can you tell everybody his story well, he is adorable. <laughs> um, he also came from Hillsborough County Pet Resource Center. Um, and he had really severe scabies. So initially, upon committing to him, because he had a firm deadline of right then, like the end of day. Um, and before even committing to him, I, I didn't know what his FIV, FELV status was. But I mean, for us, having FIV or FELV, or in his case, both. Uh, It really doesn't matter. It's just a matter of quarantine and find, you know, making sure that you have a space for him available, which is fine. We do those cats all the time. So um, initially we had just committed to a cat that had two ruptured eyes. Um, They were, they were very bad due to the scabies that he had. Uh, The scabies had took up his whole face um, down his neck and all the way halfway down his body. So he was basically one big scab of scabies, which was gross. But uh, what had happened was that it had irritated his eyes, causing ulceration and rupture. Um, And when we committed again, we didn't know anything else besides that, but it also turned out he was FIV positive and FELV positive. Of course, we still took him. Uh, when we took him to our vet, we always repeat the test because you have to have confirmation. One test isn't good enough. So the rule of thumb is at least two tests, two different tests to confirm FIV, FELV status. So we ran a triple snap at our vet, which also included a heartworm test. And it turns out he also has heartworms. Aww. So the poor guy was one giant scab fiv positive felv positive and heartworm positive and had two ruptured eyes and would need bilateral enucleations but despite all of that he is just the sweetest thing the moment you walk in and he hears you uh or you touch him he starts purring you don't even have to touch him and as soon as he hears you and knows that you're coming to him he starts purring he's just extremely friendly and scabies is easy to heal even in an fiv felv cat So that cleared up pretty quickly. Um, His fur is already growing back. He already underwent his double enucleations, did great with that. Um, And he was just treated for the second time for an ear infection as well, because he started doing this weird head tremble thing. Um, So he had a second ear treatment just recently, a couple days ago, actually. Um, And he's doing super well right now everything that he needs done has been done um unfortunately in cats you can't treat heartworms not effectively and safely at least now you can find treatments that are like out there but they're not safe nor are they recommended so um it's one of those where the hope is that the cat outlives the heartworms Mm -hmm. now in his instance because he is felv positive and his ifa positive which is 
it's a different test to see if the FELV, if the feline leukemia is in its more advanced stages. And his unfortunately is positive. He's not having any blood work abnormalities. His anemia, which he had initially significant anemia resolved. So all of his blood work looks good. He's not showing any of the signs that it's in that stage. But with an IFA positive cat, typically their lifespan is estimated at three years and under, unfortunately, but it's going to be a good life for him because he went from this scabies ruptured eye, really in pain cat to just this per machine. So whether he has one year or three years and whoever adopts him is absolutely going to love him because he's just the sweetest little thing in the world. And and when will he be ready to go up for adoption? So he can actually, he can't be physically adopted yet, but he is available for pre-adoption. So he has his sutures from his eyes removed next week. Mm -hmm. And then I would say about a week after that, if someone is interested in adopting, we can bring Poseidon to their home and kind of see. Unfortunately, he is one of those cats where we do have to, um, see the environment that he's going to be in. Usually we don't have to, but because um, we have to make sure that it's going to be an environment that's going to be conducive to him um, staying hot, like he's heartworm positive, but he needs to be kept up to date on heartworm prevention, um, which would be different types of flea medication. Um, We don't want him to have access to the outdoor, obviously no chance of getting outdoors, that type of thing, because he is blind. He has no ability to navigate whatsoever. Um, And we just want to make sure that everybody in the household kind of vibes well with him, which isn't going to be difficult because he's extremely friendly. Yeah. And how long do heartworm live generally? For cats, heartworms only live two to three years. So if he does live beyond that point, ideally the heartworms are going to be dead. Um, But that's also in a healthy cat with a competent immune system. Now, Poseidon has two retroviruses, FIV and FELV, which affect his immune system's ability to fight things off. So the lifespan of the heartworm should be only two to three years because the cat's not an ideal host, whereas a dog is five to seven years. Um, But we don't really know how those retroviruses are going to affect it. Will it make him a better host for the heartworms because his immune system isn't attacking them like a normal Mm -hmm. cat? We don't know. So that's something that even our vet can't really give us an answer to. And if anyone knows the answer, that would be nice. But we can't. (laughs) uh, They've looked and tried to find an answer, but unfortunately, we don't have an answer uh, to if that's going to be the same for him, but your typical cat heartworm, which is the same as dogs, but it typically only survives two to three years in a cat host because it is not an ideal environment. That's why most cats don't get heartworms. Now you do have a female version of Poseidon and she's jubilee. (laughs) They almost look like twins actually. What What was her story and how is she doing now? Uh, She is doing good. Uh, She came from, of course, the same shelter (laughs) that Poseidon came from. Yeah. Uh, Also had scabies. The main difference between her and Poseidon is that she is only FIV positive. She does not have FELV. She does not have heartworms. So she will live an average lifespan. She will easily live uh, 10, 15 years. FIV positive cats with proper medical care can live just as long as any other cat. Um, They are more prone to certain illnesses as they get older, but a lot of cats are prone to those same illnesses as they Mm -hmm. get older. So she's doing amazing. She uh, feels so much better. You can tell she feels so much better since her eye removals, even though she was on pain medication. um, She is happy. She's purring. She is a bit more shy than he is. So 
she does take a second to like if you go up too fast um, or she hears something loud she kind of wants to hide but as soon as you start petting her she stands right up puts her butt in the air and asks for good scratches so <laughs> she is a doll but she is a little bit more shy than Poseidon or Leonidas Leonidas is just a pet whore he will scream at you and if you don't <laughs> pet him enough he will then tell you by grabbing you with his paws um so both of them are extremely friendly and jubilee is too but she just takes a little bit more warning like you need to speak loudly uh, her hearing she had really bad ear infections when we got her of course her hearing is not up to par of a cat so mm -hmm. you know as long as she knows you're coming she will wait for you to pet her and then she'll melt in your hands so <laughs> And is she friendly with other cats? Yes, she is very friendly with other cats. Uh, she would do good in pretty much any home, whether there's kids or anything like that. She um, enjoys other cats. The only obvious consideration is the cats have to get along. So FIV isn't contagious via saliva or sharing of litter boxes or food bowls or water bowls or grooming. It's not contagious in that manner. The only way FIV really can be spread is through a throwdown cat fight. Like, you know, those cat fights you see on TV with the cats rolling in circles and the cloud yeah. dust and the bites, you know, yeah. like that. It would have to be a significantly deep bite wound um, for any chance of transmission of FIV. So the biggest thing with introducing an FIV positive cat to your household is just to do so slowly you know, make sure that the cats will get along. And obviously she's blind. So whenever you introduce a blind cat to a household, you always want to start with a small area first. So you never want to give them free roam first thing. You always want to make sure that you start in a small area like your bathroom or your bedroom, and then you slowly increase their area so that they have less litter box accidents, less stress. They don't just want to hide. And it's more conducive to also introducing to your cat as a time comes. Mm -hmm. So there would be no problems with her in a multi-cat household? No, no, not at all. I would say she would enjoy older cats. Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't strike me as a cat that should be, that is going to enjoy playing with a kitten. Yeah. Um, she's very calm. She just wants to sit on your lap. That's it. That's all she wants. She wants a good lap to lay on or a good bed to lay on, and she's happy. So um, a more calm pet household would be good kids will be fine um but a more calm pet household like i wouldn't say a two-month-old kitten would be good for her yeah now an advocate of your shelter is of course catman chris chris Pooh, who's the dad of cole and marmalade and bond how did that relationship begin between both of you because he does shave a lot for you and uh, does some kind of promotional work and is quite involved yeah, so I don't exactly remember where it all started, to be <laughs> honest, because it's been a it's been a few years now. But so we know Catman Chris does a lot of trapping in the Tampa area. So typically he needs help with placement of kittens or adult cats who are friendly so that they can go uh, and be adopted. Why? Because he has a very small space to mm -hmm. trap and keep the cats there. Um, so he does need those cats to go to rescues. So I'm a few years ago, we started uh, helping him with some kittens and cats that needed help. Um, we've taken a few FELV positive kitties from him, some older ones. We've taken some FIV kitties and a bunch of kittens. So uh, we just help in terms of his trapping so that he still has his uh, his caddy shack open for the next residence. So if he doesn't have that open, he can't continue trapping. So until he can find placement for the cats uh, where they can be vetted, taken care of, and then placed for adoption, um, until he finds that place, he can't continue what he does. So we started helping him with that. And then it's kind of just gone from there. Oh, and how many fosters do you have on board to help you? So human fosters, we have 
have about between 25 and 30 human mm-hmm. fosters, but they're kind of, it's a revolving, not a revolving door of the specific fosters, but they kind of have seasons where they want to foster and seasons where they don't want to foster. Some will go on vacation, some will come back, you know, so it's a revolving door. So at any time we pretty much have 20 available fosters Mm -hmm. and I don't really want to go above that because then it gets hard for one person to manage so uh, 20 human fosters is enough because they they're high maintenance as well (laughs) very needy so (laughs) (laughs) and what are the plans for happy tales in the future so basically doing what we're doing um the biggest thing that we really want to do in the future is to open a sanctuary um it wouldn't be like your typical sanctuary it would be where you have a main house um i run the rescue and do a lot of the medical myself not not medical vet care but you know um take in and care for a lot Mm -hmm. of our medical fosters so um we would have a main house that would be our house, you know, the place where we'd live. Um, and then my biggest dream would be to have a whole sanctuary, uh, whether that be attached to the house or separate buildings. I haven't got, I'm not sure really the logistics on that. Obviously we would want a section off of the house, which is connected to be like the medical area where that's right there because the problem with medical cats is you have to be there. So you have to be able to access them quickly. If something were to happen, you have to be able to be monitoring them. So to not have a foster situation where they're in a home for some significantly ill cat is just not feasible. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't have them at a separate location or even a separate building. You have to be able to monitor them. So basically it would be a medical portion of the house just just for that. And then of course, one of my biggest loves is doing FIV and FELV cats. So whether they have one or they have both, ideally, I would like to have two separate buildings uh, for those guys, um, not to live with us, but to give them a safe space where they can be about. And if they're good with other cats, great, um, until they're adopted. So they would have their own space to safely roam. FIV is not as important. We do mingle FIV cats with non-FIV positive cats if they're friendly. But the biggest would be the FELV cats, where they, a lot of times, FELV cats have to remain in an enclosed environment to not have the chance to spread that. Um, Some of our homes have a bedroom that they use for their FELV positive fosters, because as long as your cats don't interact, there's no chance of spread. Mm -hmm. You can't touch an FELV cat and give another cat FELV. That's not how it works. So, um, that's what our plans really are for the future. How it's going to look, we really aren't 100% sure because it's it's very hard to raise money for something other than cats. Yeah, um, It's definitely a need because we need the space to be able to help the kind of cats that we help. Um, having a sanctuary not only would would benefit in terms of space, but it would also benefit in terms of people coming and volunteering, Um, having more people come over and be able to have like a central area where even adopters could come and visit the cats if they wanted to. Uh, We could just have a big central area. Will we still have fosters? Yes. But having a base of operations per se would really help in terms of us taking in more cats and doing more and helping more because we are really limited by having a limited space basically when you're doing it out of a home you you have to one um, make sure that everyone is safe in quarantine, especially when taking in FELV cats or cats with scabies or all of these contagious illnesses, Khaleesi virus, um, any upper respiratory infection is extremely contagious. All of these things um, aren't conducive to really keeping everything separate and sanitized. Now it does really well. We haven't had any spread of anything ever, but uh, it does limit what we can do because once an area is full, you 
you can't just take more cats. You have to make sure everyone gets better and goes out. So having more space and a place where people could come and, and see the cats and, and my thing would be play with them and give them even more attention would be optimal, you know, um, would be something that I really would like to do in the future. And what kind of time scale do you think it's possible to do it in? And what level of funding would you need to do it? So I would hope within the next two years, three years, ideally, we would like to do it sooner. But because it is going to be a more expensive endeavor, um, I don't think it's feasible to do it before that point in time. Um, there are we're kind of in a range of what we would need, but your average shelter, if you look at a shelter costs anywhere from 600 to $800,000, which is a lot of money, Mm -hmm. a lot of money. Now having a sanctuary, we're hoping to keep it under that. We're hoping to keep between 300 and $400,000. And that would be for everything. Um, We can, because we are a 501c3, um, once we, start getting enough funding coming in and have a basis, we will reach out to companies um, and see if anyone would like to donate their time, Mm -hmm. uh, which is probably something that we could get certain companies to do. Um, They typically, especially around here, we found that companies really do like to help where they can. So um, we would reach out and see if some of those costs could be cut. So it would give us the ability to do something quite sizable for less money if we could get time donated or supplies donated, you know. There's ways to do it, I guess, when it's right. And you'll know when it's right, but it's difficult, I think, to put the money aside when you always have a constant need to pay for things because you have different cats coming in who have different health situations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, some rescues have done it in the past, but it's it's usually when they have a big donor. Um, so, you know, one day we'll have a big donor too. <laughs> you um, will. <laughs> a, local, a local rescue um, had a, an actual, a whole building donated for a shelter recently. So one day we hope that we can try and get our name out there enough that we might yeah. find a big donor like that too someone willing to take a chance and yeah. you know um help some kitties some really needy kitties <laughs> so but in the meantime you just keep doing what you're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah we always and are you doing anything special for your fourth anniversary no, not really. Um, I don't think so. It's hard for us to kind of um, do events, especially during summer in Florida, um, because a lot of the events are outside. Um we might do something end of July. We were um we're looking at a venue for something we don't know if it's going to come through yet so um but right now the answer is no but we might be doing something if we can get it all arranged within the next Mm -hmm. month and and would you do anything online we can we definitely can do something online we might do like a fundraiser or we might we've never gone live Mm -hmm. like a live video or something like that. Um, I know there are things online that can be fundraisers too that are a little bit more interactive, but um, we haven't put anything together just yet. If anyone has ideas on what we could do, we definitely would be open to hearing those too. Oh, it would be wonderful. It would be nice if you did a little live and you could see some of the cats. Yeah, yeah, I know people would definitely like to do that. We actually have an adoption event um, July 16th, so we might do a live there as well, and Poseidon will definitely be there. Um, Leonidas will likely be there as well, Mm -hmm. Um, so we are doing that, I believe it's on the 16th, let me see. 
Yeah, it's Saturday, July 16th. So we'll probably do a live at that adoption event as well so people can see the kitties. And of course, anyone is welcome to come down, especially if they're interested in like foster adopting like uh, kitties like Leonidas or Poseidon, you know, um, it'll give them the chance to really interact with them. And will you be advertising where they they where they need to come to? Yes, yes. It's going to be, um, we'll create an event with it. We haven't done it mm-hmm. yet, but we'll create the event. It's going to be the third Saturday of every month at that pet store. Oh. Um, it's the pet supermarket uh, in 34th South and St. Pete, which is 5,134th Street South, St. Mm-hmm. Pete. So, and that'll be every third Sunday, but our first one is going to be on July 16th. And we will be uh, putting an event out there for people who want to come out and uh, see some kitties and maybe take some kitties home. Oh, well, Britta, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you and learn more about Happy Tales. And I would just like to wish you all the success for the future and all the plans and dreams that you have. And I hope that you can make them come true. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, do our best in time. Everything will fall into place. That's usually how it works. So, (laughs) well, good luck and thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you. 